Jackie Tan and welcome to the Bodies Built Better podcast. On the show, we chat with experts, athletes, coaches and authors to educate and inspire you. We explore the body's incredible ability to heal, adapt and evolve so you can crush limitations, reconnect your body and mind and discover your extraordinary potential. Today on the show, I chat with psychiatrist, half marathon runner and health and fitness advocate, Dr. Ingrid Nielsen. I'm so lucky to know Ingrid on a personal level. She has the most incredible story. Born in South Africa, she became a nun at 16 years of age. Five years later, quit being a nun. I don't know if that's the correct term, but she left nonetheless. She went on to study medicine, married an actor. Divorced said actor, three kids later, became a forensic pathologist, eventually a psychiatrist, moved to Australia, and if you were to see her face-to-face, no doubt your first impression would be that of a lovely, sweet old lady. Now, I know she would hate hearing me say that word, old, because at 73, She is still running half marathons. She weight trains several times a week and is passionate about helping others understand that health and fitness is even more important in the later years of life. In fact, it's necessary. An incredible woman, get ready to be inspired with Dr. Ingrid Nielsen. Ingrid, thank you so much for joining me today. We've known each other for a few years now and you first came to me, uh, well, for some body maintenance because you were doing a lot of training for, for a half marathon and since then we've got to know each other and I think you have the most incredible story, even if you don't think so, I do. So can you give us a bit of background on you right from the very beginning? Yeah, the, thank you, Jackie, for asking me. And yes, we've had a, a great relationship over the years. You have kept this old body in reasonable nick, I think, over the years we've known each other. Um, yeah, from the beginning. All right, the beginning began 73 years ago. That's how old I am now. Um, just to summarise, born in South Africa, uh, one of uh, three siblings, parents my mother had actually been orphaned at the age of three and so she was brought up in a catholic orphanage this might become relevant later Um, and uh, so i think she had all the understandable limitations of a child brought up without much um, emotional support and uh, touching and affection and that sort of thing Uh, And my father was a, a great provider in terms of finances and so on but he was a pretty hard old bloke um, with a very strong emphasis on work, huge emphasis on work and income uh, and less so on other things. Having said that, um, we had a perfectly adequate childhood. Um, Parents cared for us uh, and so there was no no dramas there at all. Um, I ended up becoming a rather shy, and anxious teenager, um, 
part of this, I think, was um, growing up with parents with the background that they had. And I think partly because I went to a girls only Catholic school um, where I really didn't learn to mix naturally with boys. Um, and so when I finished my schooling, um, I kind of didn't know what to do with myself. I knew I wanted to study medicine, but I think I was actually quite fearful. And so I did something that surprises people now when I talk about it. Um, I actually joined the convent. So the nuns who had educated me, I actually joined, uh, joined them and was a nun for five years. Now, when people ask back then, um, why did you make that decision? I think I convinced myself that I made it for the traditionally acceptable reasons. You want to devote your life to God, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think the honest answer was I was just too scared to involve myself in real life. And so I joined a group of people with whom I was familiar and comfortable. And I think that's the honest truth about it. Over the, those five years, I realized it was absolutely not for me. Um, and it's a long story, but left them after the five year period and then started studying medicine, which is something I had wanted to do right from the time I left school anyway. So studied my medical degree, finished that, um, did my internship, and then I started studying to become a forensic and did complete the studies to become a forensic pathologist. Um, and over that period, bear in mind we're in South Africa now where the crime rate is probably the highest in the world, um, did over about a 10 year period about 7,000 medico legal postmortems. Um, and I don't think you get to that number in many countries. It's nothing to boast about, but it's a reflection of the violence in the country. Um, during that period also, I had an interest in um, terminal care, hospice care. So on a purely voluntary basis, I and a few other people um, established the first hospice association in Johannesburg. Um, and I worked on that basis uh, and I became the medical director whilst at the same time doing forensic pathology. Um, then I made a move to psychiatry. I'm, I'm currently a, a, a psychiatrist. And how did you go from forensic pathology to psychiatry? My work with hospice and um, I love talking to people. So this little shy, quiet introverted 16 year old had become somebody who really liked talking to people and you get people at their most raw and their most honest when their life is very limited um, and I really enjoyed those encounters and I think this took me generally in the direction of um, studying psychiatry so I walked away from forensic pathology and then did my training as a psychiatrist Still in, still in South Africa at that time. Um, I made the move, I and my three then quite young children made the move to Australia in 91. Um, and I can talk to you about why that happened and family issues if you'd like. Oh yes, because this yep. is even more fascinating. Okay. <laughs> Please do. All right, so I, I married a very well-known, not well-known in Australia, but very well-known in South Africa, actor and film director um, when I was 30. Um, 
he had been married twice before. And yes, I can see the smiles, you know, <laughs> didn't you think about that? Didn't you ask why? But at that stage, remember my history. I had been in the convent for five years. I had come out and I'd spent seven years studying when it was really head down and bum up and do nothing else. And then I met this guy and, you know, the rest is history. Anyway, we married. We had three uh, children within quite a short space of time. And when the children were one, two and four, um, he decided he preferred somebody else. So he left me with these three children and has subsequently gone on to wife number four, five and six. Um, he uh, had no contact with his children and sadly for him, he's, he's now deceased, he died last year, but sadly for him over the years, he had never actually knew about his grandchildren and that's, that was his loss, unfortunately, but it also meant the children didn't know the, their other grandfather. So the decision to come to Australia, at, at that time I was working, uh, still doing some part-time work as a, as a forensic pathologist and I had to travel a lot at night. Um, and if anybody knows, I think most people know the level of violence in South Africa is pretty extreme. And it was becoming actually quite risky to drive at night um, or to drive at all. I mean, there were frequent hijackings at um, traffic lights. Sorry, they're called robots in South Africa. I still have to do a mental stop <laughs> to call a traffic light a traffic light. I still want to say robots. Anyway. You had to be really careful stopping at a traffic light at night. And if they were red and there was nobody coming, you just kept going because it's unsafe to stop. So there came a point when I decided that if I was, I was now a single parent, if I was to be assured of getting home to my three young children in one piece, I would have to carry a firearm. And that for me was the the turning point. I was not prepared to do that. I, and, and nor, was, nor could I have not done that staying in South Africa. So I made the decision at that time to move to Australia, which for me was probably the country that I felt was closest to our lifestyle and the way that we live and so on. So then in 91, late 91, um, myself and the three children, then aged 9, 11 and 13, came over. Um, I spent four years working in Tasmania, not particularly because I chose Tassie, but because there were restrictions on where I could practice in terms of my medical degree. So my primary medical degree was accepted, but my specialist qualifications, I had to redo the Australian exams, which is fair enough. So during that period, I lived and worked in Tasmania, uh, and that's where the children went to school. It was a really, it was a really difficult period. Um, I had absolutely no family. Uh, I was working really hard and bringing up these kids and traveling at night to do on call. So it, it was tough. Um, and during that period, in fact, one year almost exactly um, after I emigrated, um, my mother committed suicide. Uh, and so that was very difficult. Um, I think she had been quite distressed at me leaving the country. Um, so that was really hard to deal with. You know, here's the psychiatrist who can't even keep her own mother alive, as it were. That's now 20, over 20 years ago. Um, and, you know, I've processed that. But as I often say to patients or, or people who are thinking about it, you know, and often will say to me, oh, you know, they'll forget about me. They'll get over it. 
And people often don't know that this comes from the heart when I say, you know, they really never get over it. The pain gets a bit less with time, but people never get over it. There's always the, did I say something wrong? Did I not say something? Did I, did I do something? Did I not do something? Is it my fault? So that four years in Tassie was quite difficult. Um, and then I finished my exams and then I could work wherever I wanted. And I had a very lovely professor of psychiatry based in Adelaide who made it really easy for me to move over to Adelaide. At that stage also the children were coming to the end of their schooling and um, we really needed to be in a bigger centre for them to go to uni and to get work. So I came over here. Do you want me to stop or should I just ramble on? Keep it going. Keep it going. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So it's, 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 well, I guess, I guess to the point where, yeah, you, you came to Adelaide yep. and started your private practice. Yep. Yeah. Well, I was in private practice in Adelaide, um, in psychiatry as a private psychiatrist for 20 years. So, um, and clearly I saw a certain sort of subgroup of patient as you do in private practice. That, that was a hard time in a different sort of a way. Um, I worked really hard. I still had three children to educate and support. So it was hard. I worked hard. Um, I think I worked too hard. My hours were too long. Um, and I think I told myself the story that that's the way it had to be. Um, again, with the wisdom of hindsight, I think um, it didn't really have to be that way. I could have done things a little bit differently and stepped back a little and took better care of myself, possibly. Um, during that 20-year period, about oh, probably about halfway through, um, I was finding it really difficult. I was still practicing well, I believe. Um, but as when people get depressed, I think it just became harder and harder and harder to do things. Um, and a lot of people, I'm sure, will relate to this, that when things get tough, um, we tend to let our personal things go. And sometimes we let our family relationships go but work tends to be the thing that we hold on to the, the longest. Um, and so it was um, on one occasion, I can still remember the date, it was the 8th of October, 2003. I walked into my office and I had my whole list of patients to see for the day. And where, where I had been saying, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, on that morning, I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't. And I walked out and I told my receptionist to reschedule the patients for the day she did that for a week and then she did that for another week and then i stopped to say no i can't run a business like this i can't do this to patients um i need some more time off so in fact i closed my entire well-established practice shut it all down um found other psychiatrists for patients to go to and um and took a year off work so it didn't work for a year first year in my life i'd never worked ever um, and tried during that time to kind of find myself and um, start doing things for myself. During that time as a, you know, practicing in psychiatry in your own practice, this, yep. this was about 10 years worth. Yeah. So it's, it's funny because I know the Ingrid now who does do yoga, who does run and who is health conscious during that 10 year period. Was any of that part of your life? No, no. And that was part of my downfall, I think. Yes. I mean, I had this, and I think this was my father sort of sitting on my shoulder and talking to me. I used to go to work and there were 14 of us practicing from the same premises, not in partnership, but 14 separate suites. 
And I used to go to work in the dark. I used to start consulting at 6.30 in the morning and people would say to me, surely you, don't, you can't get patients to come at 6.30. And you'd be surprised, a lot of working people actually like to do that. So I, I would kind of, I'd never say this out loud, but I've kind of said to myself, gee, I'm a hard worker. I'm the first one in the car park in the morning and then I'm the last one out at night. Yeah. And I think I was just deluding myself or, or maybe finding an excuse for myself for behaving that way. Um, I was a hard worker, but I wasn't working hard for myself at all. And so eventually think, you just burnt yourself out. Well, these things happen. And, you know, we, I think we all know people who do this. Uh, we're all human and uh, Mother Nature takes care of us in the end and says, well, if you're not going to listen to me, I'm going to smack you around until you do. So I took that year off and I tried lots of things um, to see what I would like. I started playing tennis, which I had enjoyed when I was at school. I found I was absolutely hopeless at it, so I gave that up pretty quickly. Started doing yoga, which um, I found incredibly beneficial. Um, and I've been doing yoga, so I was 55 then, I'm 73 now. Been doing yoga ever since, and it's a very important, huge part of my life. Um, not just for the physical benefits, which you know better than I do, um, but also for what it does for us mentally and psychologically and in terms of relaxation and things like that. So... At the end of that year, that's I, actually all I came out with in terms of what I was doing for myself was I'd taken on yoga, had not started doing exercise and had not started running at that stage. Went back to work and I was back at work for about three years and I thought, no, you're not, you're not physically fit. You need to go and do something for yourself. So Physi when, you, when you did go back to work those yeah. three years, yeah. did you keep doing yoga? Uh, I kept doing yoga. I worked shorter hours. Um, so I wasn't in the car park when it was still dark. I worked shorter hours and I did yoga. But um, as my children grew older and became a little bit more independent, I started saying, well, you know, hang on, you're not physical. You're not. Um, I've always been fortunate in terms of being a reasonable body weight, but that was more by the good fortune of genetics than anything else probably. So I hadn't been exercising at all. So in 2013, it was actually quite funny how it all happened because I went to find a personal trainer and that's my current personal trainer by the name of Scott Cameron. And I went to Scott and as all good trainers do, he said to me, what do you want? What are you looking to do? And I said, well, I love yoga and I'm really good at yoga, but when you get into the advanced yoga, you need not just flexibility, but strength. So I want you to make me strong for yoga. Be that as it may, dear Scotty, um, I've trained with him three times a week since 2013, so that's seven years now, so it's a lot of sessions. Um, the most amazing personal trainer, and he, Scott is a runner, and um, eventually we started talking about running, and I said, look, I'm, I'm really unfit from a cardiac point of view as well. And he took me around the oval uh, on our first run. <laughs> I think I made 100 metres. And then I had a walk. That's a kind of a quarter of a way around a, around a footy field. Um, anyway, I wanted to, I really, I wanted to run. And so I joined a, what's called a start running group. So Can I stop you there for a second? Yeah, yeah. So you ran 100 metres? Yep. And then you stopped? Yep. How many times did you do this? Oh, I probably ran another 100 metres and stopped. I probably had to stop four times running around yep. on one occasion. How did you feel? What did you tell yourself after that session? Um, 
I had this funny conflict in terms of my mind because I wanted, I wanted to want to run. That sounds really weird. Uh, not at all. Ran, I thought, I don't, I don't like this. I'm not good at this. I get out of breath really quickly. Um, now, you know, 67 or something. Um, but I, I really wanted to do it. And to that end, then I then joined the Start Runners Group and South Australian Road. Yeah, go on. You. And you, you're 67 at this time. I'm 67. Yeah. Okay. So I joined the Start Running Group and every running group I've ever been to, I'm always the oldest, but that's fine. You know, I don't mind being the nana of the group. So I started in this group in October 2013 and it just took off and I absolutely loved it and I and I worked really hard at my running and by April the following year so that's six months um I ran my first half marathon in April 2014 had you I'd never run before did you decide that early on that Yep, I'll just run a half marathon yeah. in six months. Yeah, well, I worked my way up to it. I worked my way <laughs> it up to it. was six months. Six months, yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. So, what was the um, goal? Was the goal just to get to the marathon start line? Or goal was, it was to get or? there and finish. Now, look, yeah, you yeah. know, you have to be reasonable. When you're in your 60s and 70s, you know, you, your, your time reflects that, obviously. And that's fine. I've never expected to come anywhere in the placings at all. Um, Do you remember your time? Uh, I remember my second half marathon time, which was the Gold Coast, which is about two months later, which was two, 2.22.03. And so that initiated two hours, 22 minutes and three seconds. What's and that the best? And I was, the first one was 15 minutes longer because I remember chopping 15 minutes off. So the first one was 15 minutes longer than Amazing. that. Amazing. So then it just went on. And in August 2015, so two years later, um, I ran the Adelaide Marathon, the full, the full marathon, with the amazing help and support of my whole group of my trainer, my running coach who ran with me every step of the way. It was just the most amazing experience. So running has become hugely, hugely important to me. Um, and as, as has my regular strength training, because I think you can't separate the two. You can't just run and not do any other kind of work at all. Absolutely. Um, so running is, is awesome. It's wonderful. <laughs> Do you remember what you were thinking and feeling when you crossed the finish line after your first marathon? Yeah, it, it, I, I don't have words. I don't have words. I really don't. It was the most amazing feeling of accomplishment and satisfaction. And it was a combination of, oh, my God, my legs don't want to hold me for another step. Um, and when am I going to do the next one? Uh, and runners will often joke about that. You, you know, as you're running and coming to the end, you're saying, I'm never going to do this again. And 10 minutes later, you, you're, <laughs> you're signing up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so sorry, how old were you when you did your first? 60, marathon? It was, uh, it was 2015. So I was about 67, 68, 68, I think when I ran the, the marathon. Yeah. So, yeah, it will never be fast um, and I never will be fast, but that's not my goal at all. Exactly. That's yeah. not what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. What does training look like now? Look, training this, well, okay, my training has been disrupted by a number of different things. So this year, of course, COVID uh, has really messed everybody's plans up. There were six or seven of us who had actually signed up for the New York Marathon 
And we would have been flying out this month to run the New York Marathon, but of course that was all put on hold. Um, and there've been no running, official running events this year, up until the Adelaide Marathon, which was at about two weeks ago. Um, that was the first event. So sadly, I think it's really hard to motivate yourself to train for a marathon that you know is not going to happen. And I'm not even sure it's healthy to do that because you knock up really big numbers in terms of kilometers. Um, and if there's no goal at the end, you know, we kind of decided we'd do that next year if we can. So my training has been, I've run less this year. Um, also been a little bit impacted by the fact that I had a knee replacement in May last year. So that's about, what, 18 months ago now. So I was very keen to get back running as quickly as I could after the knee replacement. And um, a lot of people said, no, you won't be able to. Um, yeah. Can we can we take a step back in yeah. with knee, yeah. re, knee replacement? Yeah. How how, um, how long before the surgery had you been, um, you know, living life and training with this knee? That, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually glad to be able to talk about knees and arthritis because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about knee arthritis and what people can and can't do. And um, in fact, the reality is if you take 100 people, 150 year olds off the street, no history, uh, some of them do exercise, some of them don't, and you do an MRI on all of their knees, you will find that almost all of them have a degree of arthritis many of them will not have symptoms at all. Um, and so I think it's an inevitable part of aging, but it doesn't have to be symptomatic and it doesn't have to mean that your life stops. In fact, it means really that you need to move even more than before. Um, otherwise you start declining into um, losing muscle mass, not being able to move around, etc. So to answer your question, I mean, it was strange because um, when I was doing yoga, and again, about, I think quite early on in my fifties, I got a soft tissue injury to my knee, <laughs> attempting to put my ankles behind my neck. And so I had, a, I had a somewhat painful knee and I went to see an orthopedic surgeon. Hold on. Um, Did you achieve that? Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, but I think, I, I actually think I wasn't quite ready for that. Okay. And so I probably pushed it too hard. Anyway, the orthopedic surgeon said to me, you have osteoarthritis in your knee. I now know that everybody of that age has osteoarthritis in their knee and you will need a knee replacement within three years. This is at when I was 55. I found, I didn't have that, and I found over the following 15 years or so, as long as I kept moving, in particular as long as I kept doing my yoga, I had zero knee pain, nothing. So obviously it didn't go back, didn't have the knee replacement. But then at the beginning of last year, um, I did start to have pain in my knee while I was running. Um, and there was a, a decline really quickly after that. And there was a particular 15K run that I was on where I was painful for 10. And then I actually couldn't run. So I walked the last five and I could hardly walk. And I knew that was it. Um, so I went to see an orthopedic surgeon, needed the knee replacement, had the knee replacement in May last year. And it's been absolutely amazing since then. Um, I got back quite quickly into rehab, um, made use of the zero gravity treadmill to rehab sensibly, uh, got back into walking a lot quite quickly, and then I was running again within three months um, without any pain at all. 
no pain. And in October last year, this is of course pre-COVID, a whole bunch of us went to, to Melbourne to run the uh, Melbourne Marathon uh, series. Obviously I didn't run a marathon, then I ran 10Ks, but that was really good running 10Ks six months after my knee replacement. Um, and to this day, it's perfect. It's absolutely 100% perfect. So to those who say if you've had a knee replacement, you can't run anymore, I'm not saying that everybody can, we've all got different bodies, but don't see it as, you know, a decline that's irreversible because, you know, a lot can be done. And today there's a lot of progress with knee replacements or with any joint replacement. They do um, minimally invasive surgery. They use a robotic arm. And so the rehab is much less than it used to be. So very technical, very, you know, we're improving with that all the time. What's impacted your, your training for this year? COVID was number one. Uh, <laughs> another, everyone. another issue was that I had fairly major bowel surgery in June this year for removal of part of my large bowel. And so that's obviously set me back. Didn't run for six weeks and then gradually got back into running. Um, and that's all perfectly fine now and I'm back running again. So in the last 18 months, I've had two fairly big surgeries, which in their own right um, have slowed me down a little bit. But I'm back on track. I think that's so amazing because I think as as people get older, they can sort of think that, you know, these are the things that could be the reason to stop training when actually, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Yeah, yeah. I think with, with ageing and health, these days we talk about two sort of phases and we talk about the health phase of life and we talk about the disease phase of life. And when I say the disease phase, I'm actually, we're actually not referring to the things that hit everybody, a bit of arthritis, et cetera, et cetera. We're referring to the lifestyle diseases. So we're referring to um, high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, which then have their own complications in terms of then people not being able to move around. And so we're all going to hit the disease phase at some stage. We're all going to die. We're all going to reach the disease phase. But when we do that is very much in our control, not completely, but very much in our control. So you can have somebody who's 55 and has already entered that disease phase. Um, they're not getting around, they're not exercising, they've got all the complications that I mentioned a moment ago. And then you can have somebody else who's 80 and has not yet entered the disease phase. Um, Cancers also come into that category. And of course, cancers nobody asks for um, and we can't control. So I'm not for a second saying just exercise and you won't get old at all or exercise and nothing will happen to your health. But I think the message is for all of us, whatever the age we are, that we need to do what we can with what we've got. Uh, for me, that's the number one message. Um, and there are people with uh, chronic diseases. I've, I've seen a lovely gentleman at my gym who's got quite severe Parkinson's. And so he shuffles and he's got a tremor. And we'd all be saying, well, come on, you know, you can't ask him to go to the gym. But he goes and he sees Scott. And Scott helps him with small movements, uh, coordinated movements that makes him use his, his, his brain. So his cognition is working, makes him uh, use his coordination in his arms, little things like that. And I've got the most enormous admiration for a man like that who has got quite serious illness, 
but he's doing absolutely everything he can to maintain himself as best he can. And I've got more admiration for that than the Olympic gold medalist. I admire them too. But, you know, these are two examples of people doing what they can with what they've got. And we can all do that. Absolutely. Now, I know you were also diagnosed with osteoporosis. Yes. Yes. Tell us about the advice given around that and then how you managed it. Yeah. That's really, really fascinating. Uh, I've had very poor absorption of calcium and vitamin D over the years, partly because I'm a, I've been a bit on the underweight side. That was related to my bowel condition. Um, so I was diagnosed with osteoporosis probably, well, I'd be guessing about 16, 17, 18 years ago. So a long time ago. Mm. Um, and the treatment for osteoporosis, one is traditionally told that you can't reverse it. You can, the best you can do is to stop the progression. Um, and it's the same sort of advice that's often, or same sort of comment that's often made about dementia. We, we can stop it. We try to stop it progressing, but you can't reverse it. Anyway, I've been on treatment for osteoporosis all of that period. And at the moment I get uh, just a six monthly injection for osteoporosis. It's been followed with two monthly um, bone density studies. Um, and after I started exercise, if I go back to 2013, so over the last seven years, since I've done a lot of not just running, but weight training, which is really important for bone density, um, my uh, bone density studies have shown over that probably five year period, a 36% improvement in bone density. And that's only for one reason. And that's because I'm doing strength training. Uh, and so for those who say you can't make it better, uh, we can have a pretty damn good attempt at it. To improve <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Don't ignore advice. If you need medications, you take them. Um, but there's, if, if we're going to sit around fearful that we're going to break our bones or sit in a rocking chair because we've got arthritis, we're just going to go one way and that's decline. Exactly. Mm. Really quickly. Yep. Yep. So as a psychiatrist, <laughs> yeah. what do you believe are the psychological benefits of exercise or how powerful is exercise yeah. for our yeah. mental well-being? Because yeah. obviously we've, we've just given a damn good reason why physiologically <laughs> it's good for us. Yeah. Look, I think you, you, you can't do without it. I think to treat depression without, without addressing how people live, and I'm including nutrition, but certainly exercise is a huge part of that, is really neglecting our patients. Uh, to hand them a prescription for an antidepressant, which may, which may be indicated, um, but to do that alone is actually never going to help anybody. And the difficulty is persuading people that it's really important because most people who are depressed, and certainly in private practice I saw hundreds, probably thousands of people who were depressed, don't have much motivation. And so when I used to talk about the benefits of exercise, and I don't mean running or weight training, I'm talking initially getting up, putting on your runners and walking around the block for starters. Um, they will almost always say, yes, stop, I'll do that when I feel better. And I would constantly say, you're not going to feel better until you do that. And you actually have to understand and realize it's not an issue of motivation because for all of us, motivation is very short-lived. Motivation doesn't last 
long at all. Um, what we need to have is a commitment. And we may make the commitments initially just out of sheer belief that it's going to be beneficial. Um, and the same applies to almost anything, actually. I mean, how long do we stay motivated? I'm often not motivated to go for a run, but it's just what I do. So that's a really difficult, I think it's very powerful. I mean, we all know that physiologically um, exercise raises the heart rate, it releases endorphins, it has a whole series of physiological changes which make us feel better in their own right without the need for anything else at all. Um, so it's hard, it's hard to, to get people convinced about that, but once they are, they see for themselves um, how much of an improvement it is. I remember one particular lady who would always say this, you know, now I'll do it when I feel better. And I said to her one day, so-and-so, her name, um, let's have this consultation, which was about 45 minutes. Let's go for a walk. Because I had my practice right on the banks of the River Torrens. And you know how beautiful it is walking along there. No, 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 I can't do that. So I said, well, look, let's just see how far we go. So we left. We left the practice. We walked alongside the River Torrens for the whole 45 minutes, slowly, and we came back and she did it. It wasn't hard, but she had convinced herself that she couldn't do it. And so, in fact, for a long time, we did that every time. Um, clearly, you can't do this with everybody and it's not always appropriate to do it. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really critical. Um, people who go to the gym, you'll often see it's the younger demographic. And that's great. Um, but in fact, the people who most need to go to the gym are the 50 plus. Um, and it doesn't have to be fancy. It really doesn't have to be. And people don't have to run. But we have to get our heart rate up. And that can be on a stationary bike. It can be on elliptical. It can be on anything. And we have to lift weights. Uh, and as my friend Craig Harper always says, we have to lift heavy shit. <laughs> what we have to do, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's just hard to convince people, but I think those who actually do it find the benefit of it enormously. Yeah. So how, how do you convince people? I'm not always successful. I try. And, you know, people are generally convinced when they do it. Mm. Um, the, the hard thing about, about uh, psychiatry is that you, you can give it as much advice as you want. You can't make people do anything. And I found that just repetition alone has convinced some people, but I'm sure with other people, it, it has not done that. And so you get a whole population of people who live on, uh, live on, on the antidepressants and wonder why they're really not getting better. Mm. Uh, the other thing that exercise does, and it's an indirect consequence, is, is put you in contact with people. I've never been so social since I've started running. Um, I'm in running groups. I run with a particular group of about six people every Tuesday and Thursday night. And we've been doing that and we travel together as well for, for running events, really sociable, all people out of medicine. And it's wonderful not to mix with doctors all the time. Yeah. So it, it, it enhances your social life. And the same thing um, with people who are depressed, get out there, do, join a walking group, do something. Mm, community is so important. But yeah, it's, it's very hard to convince people, I have to say. Yeah. yeah. So what does, for you right now, what does aging well mean for you? Aging well means I need to keep my body moving and that's different for everybody, but I keep on uh, yoga. I go to, I try to go twice a week. I, sometimes I get there three times a week, but I'm working um, 
I'm still working. So I work in the emergency department at the Royal Adelaide. Um, so time can be a factor and I'm trying not to make that an excuse again. Um, so I go to yoga two or three times a week. I, write, I go to training three times a week with Scott and that's an hour at a time. Um, and I run at the moment, I'm trying to run three times a week with two runs during the week and a longer run on a, on a weekend. And there's no running goal right now or just keep running until events? Are back? No, the goals are starting to come back in again because now the event's coming up. So I ran part of the Adelaide Marathon. I ran 10Ks in the Adelaide Marathon two weeks ago. Wonderful. Uh, and I'm running another event on Sunday, which is one of the Bravehearts events. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Tell us, you are going to run 10 um, days. I've, I've signed up because you see, this is what I mean by commitment. You, <laughs> if, you, if you lock yourself in, then you definitely do it. So I've signed up for nine or 10, I can't remember which, 10, just 10K races between now and the end of the year. And they're all local. They're all in, they're all in South Australia. So instead of saying... To them, oh, just, I just wanted to confirm that was... 10 10 k yes. races yes. over 10 separate events yes 10 Not only I, one, i'm just yeah. confirming yeah. to the audience yeah. that it is 10 10 k events this because year and we're my, right now my, we're in october yeah <laughs> my logic is I, I need to run 10 k's every weekend anyway so rather than waking up on saturday or sunday morning and thinking oh i'll do it now or no maybe i'll do the gardening first and then do it. If I lock myself in, then I do it and it's done. By eight o'clock in the morning, I've finished my, my 10K run and I've got the rest of the day. So it's that's as simple as that. That's how I manage myself. Other smarter, maybe more people with a different way of looking at things would, would be, it would be easier to do it on their own. But I, we all have to know ourselves. And if I lock myself in, then I know that it's easier to do it. Going to get it done. So, yeah. So the goal also next year, I'd like to get back to um, initially to a half marathon. I had also signed up for the, for the Iceland half marathon, which was, which was last month. And that, of course, fell by the wayside as well. So over the course of 2021, um, uh, if, if events allow that, I'd like to get back to, to running halves next year. Um, another full, I'll just, just wait and see at the moment. Yeah. It's a long way between 10Ks and 42Ks. So. It certainly is. <laughs> oh, well, Ingrid, I think you are sensational and I love hearing about all of your, your trainings and your events and just you're just incredible. And you've got can the I best guns. You, can I interrupt you for one second? Because Absolutely. there's one little bit I missed out when you asked my, what my training routine is. Yeah. In addition to the things I've mentioned to you, I have a fortnightly visit to the best therapeutic masseur ever, ever, uh, ever. It finds all of those sore spots, even ones I didn't know I had, and takes care of them. So without that, I don't know how I'd be. They're a very important part of my wellness. Oh, it's certainly a pleasure to help you keep training and doing these awesome Thank you, things. Jackie. But before we finish, let's just let's just end it with one more question. For those, I guess, older people who think they can't, what's your message to them to know that they can? Baby steps first. 
So depending on what people have done or, or more likely not done, just really baby steps. Um, focus, I think we, we've just, we have to stop saying how old we are. I mean, I'm now 73 and I actually feel healthier and fitter and happier than I was 20 years ago. So we have to stop repeating this paradigm of I'm old, I've got arthritis, I can't do this, I can't do that. Forget your age. And I give the same advice to anybody of any age. Start small. Um, we need to do both cardio and weights. And your cardio doesn't, not everybody wants to run. I'm not suggesting everybody should run, although give it a go. Um, but we need to do some cardio. So for starters, people have done no cardio, go for a brisk walk. And I mean brisk in terms of raising your heart rate. So not a, not a granny stroll, um, but raise your heart rate. And, and do that increasingly and gradually increase dis distances. And if you feel like speeding up a little bit and having a little bit of a jog, go for it. Um, so that's important. Cardio is important. Weights are really important. And I would honestly strongly encourage people to find yourself a really good personal trainer uh, who understands you, understands your body, understands your goals. And we need to build up our muscle. The reality is that um, from about the age of 40, we lose about 10% of our muscle mass per decade. So if we sit and don't do anything, that's inevitable. And that's a lot, 10% per decade. So by the time you're 70, this is why people shuffle when they get older. They don't lift their feet. And you see older runners sometimes doing that as well and stooping a little bit. And that's because we're losing muscle mass. So the only way to really keep your muscle mass and reverse some of that loss, you can reverse some of that loss, is with weight training. Um, women in particular tend to be frightened of that term weight training. I tend to call it strength training because there's often the, the, the image of looking like a man and building up big muscles and we don't want to do that. Um, but you need to lift weights to develop strength and uh, the improvement in your strength at any age can be really remarkable. Um, but it's never too late. We can't get back the life that's gone. We can only look at the life that we have ahead of us. Um, and the more we do about that, the more life, quality life we're going to have ahead of us. Lots of the things we can't change. We get cancer, we can't change that. But let us work on the things that we can change. And that's a huge amount. Absolutely. Control the controllables. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sensational. Ingrid, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. How incredible is Ingrid? It's so often we get caught up in all the things we can't do, but not just that, all the things we think we might not be able to do, which is crazy because we rule ourselves out of the game before it's even started, metaphorically speaking, of course. So the next time you think you might not be able to do something, instead think about how good it will be once you eventually can. Who knows? You may just surprise yourself. If you know someone who needs to hear this message, please share it with them. Hit the subscribe button and get in touch with me if there's any topics you want covered. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is always an honor to have you listening into the Bodies Built Better podcast. So thank you. Thank you. 
Have an awesome day, week, month, and year. And here is to a world of bodies built better. Bye.